Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints. Hi everybody, welcome to Quite the Interview from Quite the Thing Media. My name is Jack and today we aren't speaking to a podcaster per se, although he has on podcasting in the past. We're speaking to Gary Morgenstein, an author and a playwright. How are you, Gary? I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for having me on, Jack. Welcome from Brooklyn. Yes, I'm excited to speak to somebody that is different from a podcaster, basically. We are trying to shine a light on independent podcasters at the moment, and that's why we are doing this. But we are open to speaking to anybody. We had a, a playboy or a playboy cover girl on recently for example so we're opening up the doors Gary and you got in contact through through the website and sort of basically just asked if you could have the conversation I'm, I'm excited to to get started basically can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that that you do basically well, I just, I'm a novelist, first and foremost, and a playwright. I've published six novels, including um, most recently A Fastball for Freedom, which is uh, book two in a dystopian science fiction baseball uh, series, which started with A Mound Over Hell. And a fast, it's set in just shy of the 22nd century after the West and the United States has lost World War III to the Islamic Empire. And in book two, A Fastball for Freedom, half of it is set in the Caliphate of London. And so I look at um, what the oppression would be like for the British, who are called Crusaders, right. and the uh, things that they've lost, and uh, as different people try to fight and battle their way and come together. Have you borrowed language then? You, you mentioned Crusaders there. Is that basically borrowed from well, the Crusades, you know, the, the, the Christian war path many hundred years ago? Did you? Is that something that you, you look at? Do you look at history to then try and not predict the future, but get a, a basis for what might happen in your dystopian novels? Well, yes, you're exactly right. When you write science fiction, speculative fiction, it's up to you to create a new history. And what I try to do um, is that there's almost no references to people in our contemporary times. For example, there's no mention of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. There's, that's it. This is a world that takes place almost 80 years after ours. So if you're a reader, it's up to the writer to give you creativity and you can't be lazy. And so uh, it's science fiction. People, people think of science fiction. They all too often think wrongly, oh, well, it's Star Wars. It's Star Trek. It's about aliens and spaceships. But the genre is huge. And so what I have is um, world building. It's social science fiction. So, for example, in the United States, it's post-democracy. Uh, it's post-capitalism. It's run by an entity called the family. So, for example, you and I could not be doing this because in America, social media is banned under the anti-narcissism laws, for example. Religion is banned. It's a whole. So when you create a whole new world with a whole new laws, you have to follow your laws. And that's what makes it interesting, because at the end of the day, what people like about novels or movies or plays or whatever, it's the people. 
and it's the characters, and they linger in your mind, and it's just about ordinary people swept up in extraordinary times. You, you mentioned the sort of rules that you need to go by. As a, as a novelist, do you start with... Do you start with that set of rules or do you start writing first and then those rules come in and do you need to take a note of them to make sure that you don't contradict yourself later on? Because I imagine writing a book, you might have many ideas. Do you ever get your your wires crossed and is there any method that you use to stick to your own rules, basically? Well, you're absolutely right. You do get sometimes you stumble, you, you bump into yourself uh, because once you set up some rules, then you have to follow those rules and those rules beget other rules. For example, in book one, Amount Over Help, America has lost seven, lost 17 million people in World War Three. OK, including four million children. So abortion's illegal. And I didn't think of that when I wrote the book, started writing the book. One of my characters gets pregnant. Now, she's a single mother. In this world of this America, only married people can keep children. So she would have to give up a baby. If she doesn't want to give up a baby, what are alternatives? She can't have an abortion. So I said, well, wait a second. Abortion's illegal. You see, I almost came to the rules following my own plot without realizing it. And when you say, but sometimes I'm so like, oh, geez, why did I do this to myself? Because the three <laughs> most important, yeah, you say, oh, you know, maybe you can't cheat the reader because the, the biggest thing is a reader busting you and say oh come on you're being inconsistent one of the uh, most revered professions is police there's police there's um doctors and there's teachers because if it, you have a, as we know if you have a corrupt cop lights out if you have bad doctors bad teachers lights out so these um cops for example are not like contemporary police they don't bend the rules. They don't break the rules. They don't rough people up. They don't get access to documents they shouldn't, but they still have to solve crimes. So I had to find a whole different and unique way of addressing that. So it's, but I think it's worth it for the reader to see that, to see that I'm not taking shortcuts. And I don't want to um, stamp on anybody's creativity, but that's not why I'm, I'm here. Obviously, I want to give people a, a stage to talk about their creativity, but everybody has their heroes and things that they read when they were younger and you take, maybe subconsciously, you, you maybe take themes from things that you maybe enjoyed when you were younger. Is there anything that sticks out for you when you were younger that has had a massive impact on what you're doing at the moment? Well, yes, I think the writing of the novelist Philip K. Dick right, okay. was, an, was an enormous. I mean, he's, he was a little nuts. Well, he was a lot nuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so it's not so much a question of saying, taking anything he wrote, but he showed me what you can do, what you can get away with, how you could be creative, um, how you can go that extra step. And, I, and when you're a younger writer, you say, oh, I didn't know I'm allowed to do that. And to push the envelope, and I think that's what I was deeply um, uh, affected by Philip Dick, also because he built, he, he wrote books about social, um, about the little guy uh, taking on the establishment, about um, people being out of time, out of sorts, not belonging, you know, the fish out of water, and creating different societies that were a little crazy. And how do you address that? You know, people don't want to be heroes. You got, 
get you know be wary of the guy who wants to go over the top with the machine gun because you know most of us have our heroes or have that moment thrust upon us and i think in in literature when you write characters they want to be it's un, it's unintended it's accidental suddenly they're thrust in a situation they never meant to try to save the world but in my novel there's average people uh who just happen to try to save the world and try to bring it together through faith, which is really the most, you know, compelling thing. Because we've just gone through the pandemic. We see what the horror. Look, a year ago, Jack, did we were we sure the human race wouldn't end? I mean, how did we know there wasn't going to be mutation after mutation of the virus? It, it was kind of, if you thought about it, it could have been really, it was really scary. So I think when that happens to people, either you rise up, or you succumb. And in my novel, where people are living under tyranny and uh, they have to rise up. Obviously, as a novelist, you use language as your main tool. What do you think about the language then that surrounds the pandemic? Because where I stay just now, there is a new variant. It was called the Indian variant. It's now called Delta variant. Now, Delta variant is that not scary? Is that not dystopian? Does that not sound like something that would scare the living bejesus out of you? Do you think that journalists and we've got the BBC over here who are a, the national broadcaster, do you think it's up to them to control that language, for example? Because I think they purposely try and just scare the living shit out of you, to swear, basically yeah i think that I, i'm not a big fan of the media yes frankly okay. i think i was a jerk when i um my first career was journalism uh when i i was going to be a lawyer and i spent a year in law school and i thought oh my god i can't work with these people <laughs> they have you know the ethics of of uh thieves i just did not like them but back in the day journalism was a revered profession yes and it was you know you were doing the lord's work you were bringing the truth to people in a democracy so they could make up their own minds, no matter where the truth fell, you did not protect an ideology. And it was the truth and to the best of your ability. And I don't think we have that anymore. And in my, in a fastball for freedom, I'm pretty scathing with the BBC actually, which I say, uh, I, in the world I create, they're slightly collaborationist, even though they'll deny it. So I don't, they don't come off terribly well. They, to me, they're like the, they represent the media gone bad in the 22nd century. In the 22nd century. But what about now? Do you think you're obviously over in Brooklyn and from the United Kingdom? What differences do you see between the American media and the, the British media? And if you were to not pick a favourite, but do you think there's one that has more gold standard than the other i th i lived a year in london some 25 years ago uh which was great it was before um the internet and cell phones when you were really an expat because i, I am a, an anglophile and i'm very proud to admit it i love um britain and its history and its society and the british people i mean, i have enormous respect uh for for great britain and its place in world history i think that britain always had the tabloids like the United States, I think it's not so much the tabloids. You're going to have that those sort of people, bottom feeders. I think it's 
who are the journalists willing to stick to the truth and in, in, for the purpose of the truth and for the purpose of informing the people. And I think uh, both countries fail. I so certainly I'm, I'm far more aware of what America is about. And uh, you just, I think like uh, uh, many Americans, we don't entirely believe what the newspapers tell us, the magazines, the media, and that's dangerous because if you don't believe what the media tells you, then you can be easily manipulated and you need to have some truth. And that's, that's very scary. Democracy needs informed people. And as part of your novels, the, that informed truth that people are getting, who's dictating that in your novels? Well, in, in the United States, um, in the novels, it's up to you to, to make your own decisions. Right. One of the reasons there's no social media is, is because there's no influences. Um, G- people will listen to Jack Shaw and say, OK, I'm going to think that way or this way. In my world, you can't do that. You have to decide. I mean, that's a, that's a really huge difference. Also, opinion journalism is banned under the anti-parasite laws. So the sort of uh, a journal, you know, a journalism in quotes that we have in the United States, which is often, you know, just a cover for expressing your opinion and turning the facts to support that is, is outlawed. And, and but and in the England of the novel um, under the caliphate, well, you um, have very limited freedom. You watch, you know, you're controlled very tightly by Sharia. Uh, but in the novel, it starts, the facade starts cracking. And it starts cracking because of baseball, of all things. Right, okay, okay. Um, in London, um, under the control of the Islamic Empire and, and your novels, you mention, you mention Shahira Lada, for example. Is this something that, does something like that worry you in real life? Or is this a total fantasization, dystopian, something that's totally just, you you just made up from your mind, or do some of your themes come from real world worries right at this moment to drill into what people's fears, but at least they've got some sort of um, point that they can drill down into and, and maybe latch on to in real life as well as in your your fictional world? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. You need to give the reader some um, some rope, some cord, which comes back to what they can understand, a frame of reference. So they could see, for example, in America, in America, we failed democracy. And in the books, Britain and Europe failed democracy. Uh, you can see how that might have happened because people failed to invest in freedom. And fighting for freedom. Let's remember, there is nothing preordained that says that the United States and Great Britain will remain free. I mean, where is that written? It's we remain free because we have people who have sacrificed their lives, um, both, you know, in the ultimate and who have spent their lives fighting for freedom, for speaking out, for defending rights. That's what keeps it free. And once you get lazy, once you say, I don't know, that maybe freedom of this is not so important or freedom of that is not that important then you begin losing it and there's nothing to say i mean you know germany in the 19th before the nazis was a democracy yeah. you know for the weimar republic you could go on and on with countries which have lost their freedom and without being conquered but in the books i make the point that once you start nibbling around the edges 
and people can no longer trust each other and trust their government, that's a slippery slope into being manipulated. Yeah, so you've got your your anti-narcissism laws um, in, yes. in your books, and that deals with sort of is that the religious and patriotic sort of side of things? They are now illegal. Is that yes. That? Yeah, religion is illegal. Yeah, God's gone. So we have um, characters who were. Um, there's a scene where they're trying to figure out how to practice Christmas in the United States, and also in London, for example. There's a scene with um, the false Messiah. Um, so the the Islamic ruling party makes fun of Christians and Christmas and mocks them. Uh, I mean, the, the book to uh, Fastball for Freedom opens in a church where our main, two main characters are hiding it for escaping from the United States. But the church has been, you know, desecrated and it's more like a farm and animals roam free. And um, Buckingham Palace is a zoo. <laughs> so okay. that's yeah. yeah. So that's, you know, what you've lost, what well, you've lost it. We don't always lose something because someone takes it from us. We lose something because we let them take it from us. And that's something important to remember. And as a, a as a social commentary from, from yourself, perhaps, I I've spoken to a few Americans over the the past couple of weeks and there is a there is a massive difference between atheism and religion in the UK compared to in the USA where Again, I, I don't know if I'm passing aspersions on America, but it seems to be you kind of need to be religious, believe in a God, to, one, get voted in as the president. You need to thank God and in God we trust, and yes. it's, on, it's on your banknotes, etc. Yes. Where, where do you stand on the religious side of things and is the anti-narcissism laws that you're speaking about is that something that you kind of think it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be that bad if religion disappeared in all honesty like if it wasn't a thing well there's two things the anti-narcissism laws in the book are about social media okay okay now the family was the government of the united states believes in relationships it believes in love it believes in friendship. It believes foremost in family, in nuclear families, uh, which you see drifting away from, certainly in the United States. Now, I don't want to make everyone alarmed, but the thousand friends you have on Facebook are really not your friends. So um, in this world, they want to stress real friendship and they don't want influences. So that's the, the anti-narcissism aspect of it. Uh, so there's no cell phones. Uh, you don't, if you don't know what's happening with your family, that's your, that's your responsibility. You should find out. We have great mail delivery, but there's no email. So all the things that have acted against personal relationships, all the silos that we've been living in socially, you know, we were all in silos before the pandemic with our Twitter and our, you know, social distancing by only reaching out on social media. Well, that's not like real interpersonal relationships. So it's this society addresses all that. As for religion, I think we, I believe in God, um, but I, I respect people who don't. I respect all religions as long as they respect other religions. I think America is very versed in religion, but I also think the belief in organized religion is fading. 
in this country. I think it's under siege. I think there's attacks on um, Christians and, and Jews primarily across the world. And you see the desecration of um, holy sites, which is is wrong. Let people practice what they want as long as they're not hurting anyone. But, but you see, but ultimately, I, what I try to show in the books and in my writing is the faith we have not in a deity per se or, or religion, but in ourselves and each other. And that's ultimately what's going to save us all. So religion would be outlawed against your anti-parasitic laws. Is that right then? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. So you've grouped them together alongside bankers well, the enter- and yeah, lawyers. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> bankers, the entertainment industry, uh-huh. lawyers. You know, what, what do you, you know, the old joke, what do you call um Thousand lawyers chained to the bottom of the ocean, a good start. A good, uh, psych- a good child. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, psychologists. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, realtors, uh, real estate developers. Uh, you know, I talk about the parasites. So it's, you know, I'm pretty provocative. I don't pull punches. I'm not politically correct, but I am respectful. And I've always tried. For example, I'm dealing with um, the Islamic world. And I made very clear that when I referenced the Koran, I was correct. And I, you know, there is a dark side to the Islamic empire, obviously, but it's in the book they call the Christians crusaders. Well, we call them Allahs. So this hatred, it's not so um, dissimilar from our world now where people continue to hate and call each other names. How do we ever get past it is what I'm trying to get at. There's a fallacy in the world of black and white thinking constantly, and it's either you're either black or white, not in the sense of your skin colour, in the sense of your thinking. So if you don't think black, then you must think white. And I think that is driving a wedge into society in general. I'm getting on my soapbox here. No, please do. But there's lots of grey area. There really is. But you almost can't provide an opinion about that grey area without getting called either black or white because yes. because you're not agreeing fully with what one side is saying or the other and I think that over time, especially on social media which is a toxic place to be yeah, it drives people to left or right or black or white or Christian or Islam it really does yeah. because there's no there's no middle ground. There's, there's just no middle ground there. And people are easily led, let's say, especially if you do have 1,000 friends on Facebook and 800 of them are saying one thing, you're sort of led that way. You don't want to be left out. You, like We're a social society. So I do think the black and white thinking is something that is particularly divisive. And if it's something that you can latch on to in your novels and maybe shine a light on how ridiculous it is because this these societies that you're creating in America and London are are they the polar opposites? Is that what you're trying to get at? Are you trying to look to the future and say this might be the way that we're heading, you need to be one or the other. There's no Yes. yes. But yet there, but yet I try to do it exactly to your point with Grace. Yes, yeah. there are there are a few like bad people, but for the most part, even the bad people, I try to explain how they, why they are, how they are, 
And I think that's, you know, as you put it, you, we have to be either black or white in our thinking. So what's even worse is you cannot explain why something happened without being accused of agreeing with that point of view, yeah, which means, yeah. right, Jack, which means we can't learn. We can no longer learn why something happened. We can't go to history. You can't say, well, in our history, this horrible episode happened. Well, you, you're taking that side. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying I'm taking that side. I'm just trying to understand why it happened. What was it about the times to put it in perspective, to use our minds? And I think that's what we're really losing as people, the ability to talk, the ability to think without screaming at each other. I mean, that's that's very dangerous. You want to talk about dangerous, slippery slopes. No, 100%. Like, part of the novels as well would be, I suppose, sort of war and uh, the polarization, I suppose, of... Yes. Sort of... Again, just what we're speaking about there, it's north, south, black, white, left, right, and there's nothing in, in between. How did you approach covering such a, a vast theme as war, for example? Like, it seemed, it's so in-depth. There's, there's rules that may be there, may not be there, that you need to follow, you don't need to follow. There's all sorts of steps. So did you do... Did you do much reading yourself? Did you get in, really involved in sort of psychology, sociology, things like that? How did you approach such a big, massive theme, basically, as war? I'm a big history buff. Right. I love history. And uh, so the, the, the driving um, link in the stories is baseball. Baseball in America is was enters its final season ever because it's considered it was considered treasonous because America belongs to the old uh, excuse me belongs to the old America the great power America the world power America the America at its height so that's what baseball is associated with and when it's marks a comeback it begins to find a way to bring the world together through some of its themes. So that's the kind of the see-through that I use trying to, I mean, it doesn't say, you sound like, well, how is that possible? For example, in book two, the main character creates the Caliphate Baseball Association. Okay. To get them, to have Muslims and um, American POWs left behind, abandoned in, in uh, prison camps outside in um, the north of England um, to play baseball. So there is, you have to find the way to bring people together. And in, in this way, uh, I try to talk about understanding, but uh, and I try to use uh, sports. Okay. Can we move on a little bit from your novels? Yeah, sure. I think you've got a, a play, a black and white cookie. That yes. Is, is it coming out soon? Because I, I don't know, how have the theatre's closing had an impact on your profession, basically? Well, uh, A Black and White Cookie was scheduled to premiere last March. You know, right. man plans, God laughs. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, just, after, just a week before we were to premiere, we were shut down. You know, the pandemic, the, the, the lockdown hit us. So starting in January, I've been um, doing, uh, getting theater companies around the world to do um, Zoom productions. In fact, it, one was in the Midlands under the Headstocks Theater Company right. in uh, Mansfield. Uh, um, directed by Alan Dawson, um, they did a production of a black and white cookie, and it's there's been it's been done in Los Angeles, New York City, 
Washington, D.C., New Jersey. So the hope is that eventually um, later this year there will be like live uh, uh, theater performances, you know, in actual stage <laughs> with real human beings, not Zoom yeah. uh, listening. But the play again is about people coming together. It's um, just that briefly the log line is um, Harold Wilson, who's a, a conservative African-American man in his 60s, finally reopens his um, news agent uh, stand uh, after being shut down. And then he gets um, hit with a exorbitant rent increase. So he has to close. Well, enter Albie Sands, his longtime customer, who's a, uh, an old school radical communist from the 60s who tells him to fight back. So it's about people who seem so disparate, so different, who should not have anything in common coming together and overcoming prejudice. Because the things that unite us, there's more than the things which divide us. Yeah, 100%. Was Harold Wilson named after the, the British Prime Minister? I know. No. You know what? It's funny. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, enter with me into the, the, the world of mental illness known as creativity. Okay. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, because it's, you know, I can't understand. Writers or artists can't explain why things happen. When a name pops into my head for a character, it sticks. It's yeah. very, very rare that I will change a name. So I was, um, a, a, a year and a half ago, I was at a, a family barbecue and I was just sitting there and sipping some wine and Harold Wilson and Albie Sands were there. <laughs> They said, okay, let's do a play. I said, okay, that's cool. And that's it. It's just, you know, the, the, the characters and the ideas that run around in your head, um, that's the life of a writer. It's better than taking medicine. Well, I suppose that kind of leads neatly on to something I wanted to ask you. I read online that you are a, a yoga fan. You, you study yoga. Yes. You mentioned that the mental illness of creativity on a sort of on that point, yoga, how do you think that helps you personally with your mental health and maybe even physical health? Well, I think it helps enormously on both counts. I think it um, it takes you out of yourself and stops you thinking about yourself, which if you're you want to talk about anti-narcissism writers should be <laughs> the prime <laughs> yeah. culprits of being narcissists. I mean, at any performance, you know, anyone, actors, musicians, you know, we're all, we all suffer in our different ways from it. But also it's wonderful, um, wonderful for your physical health as well. Just the flow and the sense of connecting your tissues and your mind to your breath. It's, I highly recommend it. I studied martial arts for many years. And then um, at the end uh, of the year, back in, 19, in 2008, I just decided I was tired of being hit and getting hit. I think it was it, it was triggered by going to the dojo one Saturday and this like eight year old kid. I'm sparring with this eight year old kid and he kept <laughs> kicking me in the in the you know where. And I said, now why am I doing this on a Saturday morning? Come on, this is <laughs> don't I have something better to do? And I took yoga and I've never looked back. It's wonderful. Yeah, fantastic. We're we're getting near the end, Gary. A couple of things I do want to ask now obviously we're a podcast and we, we normally speak to podcasters but off of air just before we came on you did mention back in about 2009-2010 you were part of quite a successful podcast can you tell us a little bit about that and what do you think of podcasts in general as a, a genre a medium that you engage with well this was back in the, the wild west days a podcast on blog talk radio 
we had a show, the three of us, um, my, my two co-hosts and I, called Purple Haze, weekly show. And at one point, we had 20,000 downloads. But my friends would say, oh, maybe someday you'll get your a real radio show. <laughs> you know, isn't that sad? You know, keep trying. Because it wasn't respected at that time. And I think what's wonderful is the podcast revolution. I think it's brilliant. I think it gives voices to people all over the world and lets people interconnect and um, communicate and exchange ideas and, and get to know each other better. I, th I think it's absolutely wonderful. You mentioned the name of the podcast there, Purple Haze. Yes. Is that anything to do with uh, the wheat? No. Oh, the, no, the, I don't even no. know that. I think <laughs> right, okay. Was, no. <laughs> no, the Jimi Hendrix song. Right, okay, okay. No, and I do, didn't know do you that. you think that's anything to do with that? Like, he was quite into Possibly, back well, in the day. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, in the day he certainly did, did say <laughs> <after>, yes. <laughs> right, okay, okay. Now, one thing before we wrap it up, I know I just said that two seconds ago, but a few people that are listening might have heard of the film Sharknado. Yes. What was your part? What part did you play in Sharknado? one of the most roundly sort of panned, not panned films, but like cult films of the last yes. maybe 20, 30 years. So w what part did you play in there? Well, in I that? did the publicity. Right, I was okay, so you were trying to sell it. <laughs> yeah, I did the publicity and I believed that it could be a hit. And I was met with a lot of um, doubts. And uh -huh. um, there was, it, it almost didn't get on the air shock NATO because there was a tornado in the American Midwest a few weeks before we were scheduled to air, and they were afraid that it would show, seem like we were being insensitive. And I said, yeah. well, wait a second. Sharknado <laughs> is about a tornado <laughs> in L.A., picks up, which has never happened before, pick in Los Angeles, picks up sharks from the ocean, dumps them on land. <laughs> Who is going to think there's any similarity? And they said, well, you better be right. And then, you know, we were off to the races, and it went on for years, and I had cameos in Sharknado 2 and Sharknado 3. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, because it was on, in Britain, it was on the Sci-Fi Channel. Yes, right. I worked for Sci-Fi Channel, yes. Yeah, so it got um, almost promoted as a, a premiere that you could see yes. on the Sci-Fi Channel. You know? Yes, yes. Well, man, I didn't watch it, Gary, I'll be honest. Um, That's all right. I did I did find the, the premise amazing, like similar to snakes on a plane or, or yeah, whatever like yeah. sort of along <laughs> those same lines where yeah. it's just absolutely ridiculous now Sharknado yeah. you were trying to publicise it but the whole piece basically like how much time and money and effort goes into even something that seems as ridiculous as that like how much time are you spending on the publicizing side of things when it comes to a, a film that you're hoping makes money. You don't want to lose money. Nobody wants to lose money. Oh, I spent a lot of time. It was like my main focus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It, because it became such a cult hit. At first, people thought, oh, it's a stupid, bad movie. Yeah. You know, what you, 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 you poor guy. Isn't it sad that you got to you know, promote this? And then it was like, oh, wow, great job. We need more. So they were Sharknado 2, Sharknado 3, Sharknado 4. I think they finally bailed out of Sharknado 5 or 6. Uh, <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, but but it, it was just, it made people smile. 
And if you went to, you know, in our world, if you give people entertainment, if it's even bad entertainment, so what? Who cares? As long as you're having fun, right? Yeah, 100%, man. I can I can totally get behind that. Like my my co-founder Colin has to put a leash on me at times because I just want to go out and yeah, have fun and just go yeah. for it. Like yeah, I'm going to swear here again. Fuck it, just go, <laughs> just go for it. Because in my opinion, this might be different for you. You've got one life and you need to live it now because there's nothing yeah. there's nothing coming up. I don't know what you think about that. No, I agree. Yeah. But you get one shot, one chance yep. to just go for it, and that's why I've I've started a network, and that's why I'd imagine you decided to write books, write plays, and yep. expand and use that creativity that you have. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Gary. Thank you. Normally, so normally I've got my my set questions for everybody that comes on. I didn't have any questions written down here for speaking to you. <laughs> I did not because I thought from what the the brief conversation that we had before we decided to record this, I thought, nah, there's no point. I'm just going to have this conversation and bring up maybe maybe some things that people might find not offensive, but like things that are maybe not spoken about so openly on a lot of podcasts. So Gary. Thanks for coming on, man. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Same here. Thank you very much. And by the way, if I could be shameless promoting, you yes. can get my novels at Amazon.com. Please, a mind over hell, a fastball for freedom. Right. Uh, Gary, you just send me those links and I'll put them in the show notes so people can just click it and, and they will be able to find that easy peasy. But as always, guys, thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening. We will speak to you soon. Quite the Thing Media, we aim to bring you the best podcasts produced by independent creators, made without constraints.